Imagine that you're incarcerated in a prison. You cannot leave the prison itself, but someone showed you how to unlock your cell door so that it will never lock again. You can walk throughout the prison at will. You can go outside into the yard if you want, though you can't leave the prison, at least not yet. The guards threaten you with bodily harm, but you've come to realize that all they can do is threaten. They can't really harm you. So, you live in a prison, but with freedom, ironically, knowing that someday you'll be outside the prison itself. In the meantime, life is fun and meaningful, and what's better is that you know how anybody in the prison can unlock their own doors. And you tell them all, all who will listen, and if they want, they can unlock their doors and be free. The warden of the prison is pretty angry at this development, and he finds, though, that he can't stop it. So, however, he's far from stupid. So, in response, he lies. He lies to everybody in the prison that they can't actually unlock their doors, so don't bother trying. And if they do try, that they'll suffer for it greatly. The only safety, he says, lying is for all to remain in their cells. This scenario is not far from the current state of the world. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world, entered Satan's world to set the captives free. Isaiah 61, it was prophesied of him. However, uh, sorry, whosoever can believe in him and be saved and be free, whosoever, it doesn't matter anybody. anybody. And though the, the saved are still bound to this world, they are free to live the new life that Christ gave them. He didn't give us ideas about the life, information about the life. He gave us the life itself. And with it, the wisdom and the power to live that life abundantly. Every day, thousands of people are set free in this world. Some of them, however, sit in their prison cells with the doors unlocked. They are free, but their minds are still captive. Some of them are starting to explore their new life. It's dangerous because they don't know as much as they should, and and so they're open to deception. And some have allowed their eyes to be open and see the new life they are living, and they strive to live it abundantly. They know that they're free. Their eyes have been opened. And they're calling out to others that they can also be free. And they do this effectively. They walk throughout the prison of this world, setting the captives free themselves with the gospel. Now, in the reality of this, can you imagine the, the uh, frustration in the heart of Satan, if he has a heart? Can you imagine his frustration? Thousands and thousands, millions and millions have been set free. He is, uh, so can you imagine also the excitement of the Lord as he watches from heaven this development as time goes on and he anticipates his own return when he will bind the warden. He will bind Satan and imprison him and fulfill his promises to the saints. 
the covenant promises to Israel and to the end of the age. And so today we'll see that the promise of the Lord's judgment upon men. He's coming back. And when he does, we're talking about the second coming here. When he comes, he's going to return to the earth and he is going to judge. He is also going to set free at that time those who are his. And we're also, in the meantime, as we see before that time comes, we're going to see the exciting things that he's given to the church. What he has given to the church is his life, a new life that has never been seen before. It's never been seen. It's called a mystery. Never been seen on the earth, not even seen by the Old Testament prophets. So, this is your life. If you love exciting movies like I do about special forces, guys or girls, behind enemy lines and impossible situations in which they have to overcome the enemy and set others free, well, that's your real life. It's even more exciting because it's real and the outcomes are eternal. So it's better than Mission Impossible. I guess one of those is coming out soon. Better than Rambo. I love Rambo. Better than Indiana Jones. The first one. Well, the rest of them are garbage. Not, not garbage. Better than Star Wars. Better than them all together. You and I have been given by our Lord the freedom of life. And while he has us remain in the prison. Our doors are wide open. We walk boldly, confidently. Through this world as, as his, living his life. And so today we explore the word of God together that speaks to this, to about this to us. After we pray and we sing, we'll get right into it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have set us free by the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you that through the humility of the saints that we can continue to learn your word and learn and, and process and come to understand the amazing life that you have instituted in this age. It is a mystery. It had been a mystery, but it's no longer a mystery to us. You have provided for us the life of Christ, which is exceeding abundantly beyond anything that anyone ever imagined. And it is not in a kingdom world ruled by the Lord. Our Lord is at your right hand. And we still live in a world that is ruled by the devil. It is filled with people who have rejected the gospel, rejected your son, and pursue sin and evil. There's many Christians in it who are still entrapped. Their minds are entrapped and souls. And some of us are still in some ways. And yet, Father, you are patient and you are teaching and you are revealing to every one of us how it is that we can truly live this wonderful life and be free. Teach us to see, Father, how important it is. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, before you stand up, just a couple of announcements. Uh, Tuesday, Wednesday class is canceled as Chris and I are going away. I'm not telling you where. No, I'm kidding. We're going to Astoria. Uh, so there will be class on Thursday the 13th. So no class Tuesday, Wednesday. We'll be here Thursday. Uh, church picnic again, just reminders, August 12th. Um, if you want to bring someone, 
you can, you know, if you want to, if you have someone who wants to fellowship with a bunch of knuckleheads like us, please bring them. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, like I, we want to share God's blessing not only amongst ourselves but with others. Uh, there's postcards in the back uh, that have the address on it and stuff at that back table, and it's listed on the website. Also, uh, Chris's surgery, my wife Chris is coming up on Friday, so if you could keep her in prayer and me. Now I'm apparently going to have to do a bunch of chores and stuff. Uh, So pray for me mostly. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Uh, Yeah, please keep her in prayer so that it is as minor as possible and the recovery is as quick as possible. All right, let's uh, all rise, please.
far from the peaceful shore. Very deep, he stained within, seeking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me. In the 
begin in Matthew 24. And we begin with the second coming of Christ. Matthew 24, 29. This is what Paul is referencing in our main passage in 2 Thessalonians. It's referenced so much throughout the Scripture. It is the culmination of the age. Matthew 24:29 But immediately after the tribulation of those days that's Israel's tribulation the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky notice all on the earth will see it with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. Uh, in our passage, the angels are coming with fire, which is uh, speaking of judgment. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. When that day happens, that is the end of an age. This institutes another age, which is the kingdom that Christ, that God has promised to Israel uh, and the fulfillment of all the covenants to Israel that Christ will, will fulfill during the millennial, his millennial reign. He's going to reign for literally a thousand years, as is spoken about, written about by John in Revelation chapter 20. He will fulfill those covenants. And right before that time, he will judge. Some will be judged and some will be set free. Some will be judged and some will be delivered. But that's it. When that happens, that's the end of what? And think about all that's going to end at that time. Will there be conflict anymore amongst people on the earth? You know, wars, uh, contested presidential elections, uh, one scandal after another. 
Will this all continue as we see it now? It will not. Will there be more? Will, will this? Will we continue to hear about when Christ is uh, ruling this on this world that this is going to kill you and this is going to kill you and this is going to get you and this is you know the world's going to end in 12 years because of whatever global warming or whatever? Is it, none of that occurs anymore? So go to Second Thessalonians 1 5. Second Thessalonians 1 5. So that day, whenever it comes, is a day of finality. It is a day of judgment. And as Paul is going to reference that day here in this opening chapter of 2 Thessalonians, because he's going to use it to comfort them because they are suffering. Now, believers are not going to suffer like this in the millennial age. Christ is going to sit on David's throne and rule for a thousand years. Ain't no one going to persecute his saints, not while he's here, but while he's not here. That's exactly what happens. In fact, it's promised to us that we will suffer for his namesake. God, in fact, says that we're honored if we suffer for his namesake. And there's only one way we're going to suffer for his namesake, is if we're actually living a life that honors his name. Then we will suffer for his namesake. And this is a challenge that each of us has. All believers are given this new life in an old world and in an old body. And we're still tempted by the old body to live the old life. And I know I don't mean I mean it ranges. The old life ranges from the most catastrophic kinds of sins to the more you know uh, what's the word the more pleasant sins I guess <laughs> you know the the uh, venial ones, not so much the cardinal ones. That's I was brought up Catholic, so if you know anything about that. Uh, you know, the ones that, you know, they don't really send you to hell. You just get a few days in purgatory for them. But what it is, is people, you know, we're, we're still tempted to live a life that is not the life. And the life has so many aspects to it. Right? Think about it. There's a whole bunch of stuff you're supposed to do. There's a whole bunch of stuff you're not supposed to do. There's prayer, there's study, there's growth, there's ability, there's wisdom, there's humility, there's comfort, there's encouragement, but also at the same time a great amount of strength. You're a warrior and a poet. You're strong and not bending on the truth, yet you're comforting and loving your enemy. And look, there's no way that you're going to get to heaven at the judgment seat of Christ and say, well, I didn't have enough time to learn it all, you know. My pastor stayed in the book of Ephesians for like 10 years. That's all I know. We're all going to be responsible for every part of it. And when, you know, and and when are we, we, when we're convicted of living this life in enemy territory, Resisting and saying no to the temptations of the enemy. 
that we are actually going to truly analyze ourselves, evaluate ourselves, and I do, uh, and we should do this in prayer, where are my, I, like, I want to know, where are my selfish parts? Where are my lazy parts? Where are the parts of me that are unwise and unknowing? Because all of us have them. You could be the most mature believer on earth. You're still lacking somewhere spiritually. Because none of us fully arrive, not in this life. Are we longing for righteousness? Or is it just a convenient thing? And this is what, you know, these letters, these letters to the Thessalonians, it's really what they're getting at. Because they're letters of encouragement to new believers that even Paul, when you read, you know, he says that he boasts about them to the other churches. And it's almost like Paul is shocked at how faithfully they're enduring despite all the persecution that they're getting from their friends, family, and neighbors in, in their town where they live. They're heavily persecuted, and they're brand new. They're only a few months old, <laughs> born again a few months ago. They're infants, really, in the spiritual life. Yet, Paul says, he's shocked. and He gives thanks. Gives thanks to God, not to them. Gives thanks to God, knowing that God is the one who's done the work in them. And God has done the work in us as well. And so all of this is a part of, you know, when you, when you step back from it and look at big picture, which is what I've been doing a lot of lately, I've been looking at human history as a whole. It's, it's amazing, but it's also a lot. That in the, in the whole age of mankind, God is, has been revealing himself and revealing the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah, slowly over time. And throughout the Old Testament, you know, the prophets, as, as time goes on with more and more prophets, more and more is revealed. Right up until Malachi, and it ends. And when it ends, all these promises that God has for Israel are all unfulfilled. It just hangs there. You know, Malachi ends with someone's coming. That's it. He's coming. And there's a forerunner coming before him, as forerunners do, which is John the Baptist. And this is shown. But things go unfulfilled. They're just hanging there, unfulfilled promises. And then comes the Lord. And when the Lord comes, he can be accepted by his people or rejected. And we know what happens there. He's rejected. The people of Israel have had the opportunity. Well, actually, we should just say mankind in general has had the opportunity to accept God as king in the Garden of Eden. We said no. To accept the, the authority of God after our fall, we said no. To accept the governments that God had put over us, we said no. To, ex, to uh, accept the, the judges that God put over Israel, they said no. The king, they said no. And then finally, the king came. And mankind in general, which Israel represents, said no. And you would think that God had just washed his hands of this. But, and, and here's where the mystery happens. Because if you read in the Old Testament, 
it says that the Messiah should come. There's definitely going to be some suffering. We, and they didn't understand that, which is obvious. Even the disciples didn't understand it. But then there's this massive victory of the Messiah. That they really grabbed hold of. And that what they expected. So as the disciples would say to Jesus, is it now that you're bringing in your kingdom? Because we're pumped for that. And he said, it's not for you to know. The times, the epics, the God, the ages that God has predetermined is not for you to know them. I think, how strange. We have all these prophets that are telling us all the things that are going to happen, like Daniel especially. And what do you mean we're not supposed to know? And what he meant was, which the disciples would come to know later, is that there would be an age that would be bizarre. And you're living in it. Why is it bizarre? Well, there's many reasons. Apostasy would increase greatly. That's one of them. There's many reasons. But the thing that I'm focusing on here that Paul really does in Thessalonians is that God would bless his saints with divine eternal life in dwelling of the Holy Spirit, in dwelling of the Son, the completed, full canon of Scripture, all the revelation, nothing more to wait for. <clears throat> and he would do that in the enemy's world. So, in the enemy's world that has been constantly sown with sin and evil, sin and evil, sown, sown and produced, that the Lord Jesus Christ would come and plant a garden. And it's better than the Garden of Eden. And that garden is in your heart, in every believer's heart. My heart, it's there. Now we can cultivate it, we can be good soil and produce fruit, or we can ignore it. And when we ignore it, we're just dabbling in the world, the old world. Right? What does Paul say? Lay aside the old man. Put on the new. Right? There's an old and a new. The old is sin, evil, selfishness, worldly stuff, materialism, uh, everything that the world wants. The new is Christ. And, you know, to, to really cultivate our garden. And it's not, it's not just a gray world where it's hard to grow stuff. Like I've said this before. Chris and I took our, our, our hands at trying to get green thumbs uh, a number of years ago. Well, first year was magnificent. Right? We, even, we grew tomatoes. They grew great. Like everything grew great. We're like, what are all these people talking about? About gardening is hard. It's not, obviously. They, they should take some pointers from us. But then, you know, and we live in Dallas, uh, and all the bugs in Dallas found out that there were new tomatoes over on Washington Street, and they all came. They came, and they came. They were like the Amorites descending down the hills upon our tomatoes. And uh, aphids, slugs, right, every, everything came. Nothing grew the next year. We were like, enough of this. Enough. <laughs> all right, too much work. Now, a man, now that's the world, but on top of it, 
Say there's someone in Dallas who hates us so much that they keep bringing buckets of bugs and dropping them off in our garden. But that's exactly what Satan is doing. It's not just a world that's hard to grow in. It's a world that is hard to grow in that is ruled by someone who hates the growth. Hates it. So the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus is, is sowing wheat in your wheat. Meanwhile, Satan is sowing tares. And the parable before that, the parable of the sower, Satan is also sowing the lust for riches. He's sowing the worries of the world. He's sowing persecution so that we'll quit and abandon the life that he's given us. And yes, it will get easier if you do. So what Paul says to the Thessalonians is, look, you haven't abandoned the life that God has given you, that I taught you. Amazingly so. I mean, in in Thessalonica, more so than in other places, their neighbors, their friends, their families persecuted them just for the fact that they converted to Christianity. Again, in the ancient world, everything revolves around false gods. Everything does. So if you're going to a Christmas party, they don't have those yet, but if you're going to a party about anything, that is a party that celebrates at its center some false god, like Baal, a Malak, or Dagon, or any of them. (coughs) And so if you're a Christian, you say, I can't go. If it's a sporting event, you can't go. If it's somebody's birthday party, they're generally sacrificing to some false god. And you're like, I can't go to that. And and so their family and friends are like, what what are you better than us now? They're like, no. I just worship my Lord. I can't worship false gods anymore. Before they did, but now they don't. Persecution is heavy. And... Paul is going to comfort them with the second coming of Christ. Now, if someone's persecuting you heavily, or uh, maybe not pointed directly at you, but the bad decisions of people who are evil are affecting your life in a painful way. If when you look at those people or think about those people, if you understand that the Lord is going to judge them and nobody is going to get away with a thing doesn't that change how you view that person or that event? It changes it completely. That Look, it's okay. You don't have to get angry. You don't have to get anxious. You don't have to get worried. The Lord's going to take care of it. Maybe not today, but soon enough. And in fact, it would cause you to have pity and sympathy for the people who are so deceived that they so evil in a world that is, has it's stamped temporary. Because the Lord is coming back and he's going to make everything right. People in our world who are advancing, and and they're the ones we see on the news, right, that people get absorbed with. They're the, I won't say names, but those in the world who have power, they have influence. Uh, You know, uh, when I was preparing this, um, I was trying to think of an evil ruler in our age that I could use as an example. And I'm like, well, I mean, I know there's a lot of them, but, you know, where are the Stalins anymore? 
Where's Hitler? Where's Mao Zedong? Where are these people? Right? I, I couldn't think of one, except for the, the, the chubby guy in North Korea. He looks like he's lost weight, but not that that matters to me. But, <clears throat> you know, where, where are they? And it, it's like they've all, you know, where are they? That's a good question. <laughs> they've all become a one-world elite, haven't they? Right? I, I, thought of, I thought of Putin, and I'm like, well, you know, he's kind of chummy with the rest of them, you know, isn't he? I don't know. You can't just pick one person anymore and say, ah, the evil one who's trying to rule the world. No, they're disappearing. Whatever Satan is doing. It doesn't matter. It's not going to work. But here, look at 2 Thessalonians 1.5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Now, uh, the phrase, this is, it should be, if you have a New American Standard, uh, and I think other modern translations, it's in italics because that verb in front here is, it's not there. It's not, Paul didn't write that. Paul starts with the word proof, which in your Bible says plain indication. Same thing. Right? It's one word. That's where he starts. And so, if we put this is, it might refer back to, you know, the Thessalonians' faith and love and endurance. So we would take it as your faith and your love that are increasing is proof of God's judgment. But that actually doesn't make any sense if you think about it. How is my faith proof of God's judgment? God's not judging me. Right, so what's proof of God's judgment is what is to come in Paul's sentence. And what's proof of God's judgment is the second coming of Christ. So rather than uh, this is, here is, is a little better. But we've got to put in some English word because in English it doesn't sound right. In Greek, it, you don't need it, but in English we do. So just so you see that, that what is the plain indication of God's righteous judgment is the second coming of Christ. And, then, and so this word worthy, which is used in several places throughout the New Testament, always refers to God's opinion of us. You know, what, who's worthy? Well, certainly none of us on our own are worthy, but what this word ref- references is God's opinion of how we handle life in light of the old world, the old kingdom, the old self that we used to be before we were saved. Meaning, and, and included with all of that is all the sin and evil and selfishness and all of that. And in light of the new life that I have in Christ and the fact that this history that I'm in is temporary, as is my life is temporary, and that my Lord is coming back to establish a permanent world. Well, there's a reign for a thousand years, yeah, but this is going to be a new heaven and new earth all linked to his return. And how do I view myself and my life in terms of all of that? It's really all of history and all of salvation. Who am I? Who is he? 
And so, will God see me as worthy of this? Do I walk in a manner worthy of it? Do I live in a manner worthy of that? So before that day when the Lord will establish his kingdom on earth, God planted the knowledge and love of his kingdom in the hearts of men. The kingdom is not here, but it's in our hearts. We see it. We see the king and we see the kingdom. We possess the ruler. He's ours. He's in us. And we now, as prisoners who are set free, can leave our cell and wander about the prison the great angst of the warden and the great angst of the guards. And we leave their angst in the hands of our Lord. And we do what our king, who has set us free to do, we do that. And that it, it takes uh, being sober-minded and alert and diligent because we're still in this old body and we're still in the old world and we can easily forget and go to sleep spiritually. We can so easily get again absorbed with ourselves and get that tunnel vision that's just me and my life on my stage and neglect to see what this life truly is. And it's very exciting. So do we see the value of the new kingdom in our king over the old flesh and the old world? Do we see why we must reject everything in the old and embrace the new? God's glory shining in this world. Who's it up to? It's up to us. Isn't it? He told us you're the light of the world, and then he left. And he said to the disciples the night before he died, he said, you'd rejoice if you knew why I was leaving. Because when I leave, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be my light unto the world. And what, happened? what were their lives like? Every one of them, just like the Apostle Paul would be, constantly fought against by the enemy. And to them that meant, as Paul says here, this is proof of the righteous judgment of God. Look at how they're all acting against the truth. This is proof. that When the judgment comes, it is just. It is right. And this is written all over the Scripture about the second coming of Christ. So there's an old self and a new self. Right? How many times have you been acting like the old self and then it dawns on you? Wow. What a horse's butt I've been. And you know, and it it, it just rushes in on your memory that, oh man, (laughs) I forgot. Or, you know, I've been acting like the old, old self. There's an old self and a new self. There's an old kingdom and a new kingdom. And if you are a new self, you're a member of the new kingdom and Christ is your only king. You see, the kingdom in here, it will be. It's not here now. But we see it. And we can live its way. We must live its way. Hence, our our life in this world is incredibly important. So, the Lord is returning to judge and set free at the end of the age. That is a fact. The faith and the love of the Thessalonians uh, has been a result of this uh, confidence. Uh, When they looked at their persecutors, they see this. And, you know, what they want, what they long for, therefore, 
is that their enemies, their persecutors, would not be at the wrong end of this event. Because if you read forward verses 6 through 10, it's, it's awful. The judgment upon those who have, dis- and it's, he says, they have not obeyed the gospel, which shows that it's not predetermined, it's of their choice. They have not obeyed the gospel. They said no to the gospel. They don't know the Lord. They said no to him. And the judgment upon them is dire. So would we want that as much as they've pained us and hurt us and hurt those we love? Would we want them to be on the wrong end of this? And we would not. No believer would. So in Thessalonica, between the first letter and second letter, nothing's changed. They are heavily persecuted. So the new life is an exceeding growth of faith. The exceed, as, as he writes here in verses 3 through 4, the exceeding growth of faith, this is what the new life is. My faith must continue to grow. I never sit still when it comes to faith. I'm always growing. I'm always learning. And, and I must, it's a real trap for us. You must not ever think that you know everything or know even a lot about a certain aspect of God's Scripture. There's so much to know. <clears throat> Our love towards all people must abound. Not even stay where it is. Do I love enough? Your answer to that must always be no. Shouldn't we be depressed all the time? I don't love enough. I don't have enough faith. I don't have enough wisdom. I don't have enough knowledge. But yet, content and happy people. <clears throat> this uh, faith and love is not of my making. Of course I don't live up to 100% of it. It's not mine. It comes from heaven. It's not me. And then endurance and faithfulness. That's what the Thessalonians have. It's going to get hard. Jesus didn't promise us, oh yeah, they're going to persecute you and the whole thing will be easy. No pain, don't worry about it, right? No, it's going to be very hard at times. Are you willing, or can you endure in your faithfulness despite how hard it gets? And as C.S. Lewis puts it so well in mere Christianity, if we lie down... You know, if the wind is against us and we lie down, we'll never know the strength of the wind. We have to stand against it to know how powerful it is. And the same is true with temptation. If we give in to temptation in a minute, then we never know how powerful temptation is. And therefore, we don't know how powerful sin is. It's actually those who resist sin who know how powerful sin can be. For those who give in to sin easily, they have no idea how powerful temptation and sin and the sin nature are. They don't. And that's why as we stand firm against the schemes of the devil, as we wear our armor, we're, we actually come to know more and more how weak we really are. Because those who lie down, they think they're strong, and they have no idea how strong the enemy is against them because they keep giving in. When you resist, you'll find out how weak you are. And then you'll find out how to actually use God's strength to make you strong. So uh, while we're doing this, 
There goes my like my bouncy world. <laughs> in a world, this I'm sorry, I had a little bit of fun with my PowerPoint this morning, but in a world where Satan is always planning evil, always he's planting it, he's planning it against you, particularly against you, by the way. If you are, if you're starting to get it, and you're striving forward to be that good soil upon which there is fruit, the fruit of the Father, and you're going to be a target. And you say, well, why is all of this happening to me? That's why. Why me, Lord? God says, because I like you. Because I love you. As James writes, we should be joyful in our trials because they produce endurance. We have various trials. And God has allowed Satan in this world to continue to sow. That's what, happened. That's what he says in the parable of the wheat and the tares. When the, when the servants come and say, Lord, they've planted tares in your field. He was like, leave them. Leave them. We'll separate the wheat from the tares at the end of the age, which is the second coming of Christ. So look at uh, verses 3 through 4, as we just stated. For 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. Now you see that? Their, their faith, this word for greatly enlarged, by the way, is, is a word that is agricultural. It means to grow from within. Uh, it's a like a plant, an organic growth. And um, that's what he says here, that it greatly grows or greatly enlarged. And the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly. That's why we know Paul is kind of amazed at them, because he doesn't use this word proudly. Of I don't think he uses it of anybody else. Uh, and, and it's really a, a word for boasting. He's, he boasts of the Thessalonians to the other churches. <clears throat> so therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Now, persecutions and inflic- afflictions, they're synonyms. The, the Greek words... You, know, they, you can use them interchangeably, and in fact, they are used interchangeably. For, for instance, in Romans 8, 17, <clears throat> where Paul is writing a conclu- uh, almost a conclusion of this chapter, he says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, that's lipsis, and or distress or persecution, diagmos. Those two words are the words that you see in your passage here that are afflictions and persecutions. They're interchangeable and you know so why does Paul use both of them he could easily use one and that is because he's emphasizing it he's emphasizing the fact that they are truly persecuted that there's a lot of problems to this to this life and God has he's not only just you know he's allowed it to happen but he's designed it to happen it's prophesied by Christ during his ministry, he said, after Israel rejected him, he said, things are going to get tough. And they're going to be tough until I come back. 
So be faithful, pick up your cross and follow me, deny yourself daily, all of that. And your and he didn't stop there. He said, and your reward will be great. They've rejected me. That, this is the mystery age. You don't see it in the Old Testament. That there would be an interim. Some age between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ that would last who knows how long. It's been going on over 2,000 years. And for us pre-trib rapturists, you know, there's like a, a, a partial first coming and then a second coming. And we'll get, we're going to get into that coming up soon. It's going to be super fun. But, uh, you know, and, and when Christ speaks of it, he's speaking of his first advent and his second advent. And he said, in that time, which includes the tribulation, it's going to be rough. But I'm going to give you power. What, what I'm really going to give you is the divine life that I promised Israel in the new covenant. I'm going to give you not all the blessings of it, but I'm going to give you the spiritual blessings of that covenant. The new covenant in my blood. I am going to give you my life and leave you in this dark world. What a hoot. Yeah, it's, he could give us the life and whisk us off to heaven, please. Right? That's what a lot of us say. I just want to relax. And that day's coming. There'll be no conflict. Everybody's going to be happy. Everybody's going to be wise. There's going to be no more idiots. And no more bad plans and no more arguing and no more selfishness and pettiness and smallness and shallowness and any otherness that is a sinful thing that causes issues and conflict and problem and heartache on this earth. All going to be gone. But he said, until that time, I'm going to give you my life and leave you in the midst of that nonsense. Now, when you look at it from a big picture view like that, does it seem right to you that we should be complaining about anything? No? Well, the answer is no, in case you're wondering, to that rhetorical question. Does it seem right that we should want to fix the world and make a utopia here on earth? No. That's called amillennialism or amillennialism. It's a fancy, it means no millennium, <laughs> which became super popular in about the 4th, fourth, 5th fourth, century, 3rd, 4th, 5th century. It's been a, a, a doctrine adopted by the church, a great deal of the church since then. And it's funny, when the persecution of the church ended and it became an accepted religion in Rome, the uh, idea of the coming Christ and his establishing his kingdom on earth in the millennium kind of lost favor. Because life got easy for Christians. And they were like, you know, this kingdom isn't that bad. So they didn't, they didn't want the new kingdom all that much. It just shows human nature. That's God up in heaven scratching his head saying, what did they do with my premillennialist doctrine? And it's like, sorry, Lord, they changed it. Nothing changes. So, uh, these two words are the same, right? This is going to happen. Will it separate us from the love of God? No. 2 Corinthians 12.10, Paul says, applying this to himself, right? This is the passage with the thorn in the flesh, and he said to the Lord, if you would please relieve me 
of whatever this thorn is. We don't know what it was. In 2 Corinthians 12.10, he says, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with distresses, with persecutions. There's one of our words, diagmas, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So, Paul realized how weak he was. He could not handle whatever the thorn in the flesh was. I mean, if he could handle it well, why did he ask for it to be taken away? He realized how weak he was. But then when he realized how weak he was, and yet still had to do what God told him to do. Right? God had called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, a minister of his gospel to the world. He could not, as he said, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He had to do it. He knew he had to do it. Just like you and I should know that we have to do this life. We have to do it. And when we say we have to do it and we're going to do it with complete commitment day in and day out to be the people that God has made us to be in love, in wisdom, in kindness, in gentleness. No, there, you say to yourself, there is no reason why I can't be kind. There is no reason why I cannot be wise and minister and, and love and also be strong. And you will find out that you can't do it. You'll find out how weak you really are. And then so then you're at that crossroads. You either throw in the towel and say, I'm going back to the old life. I can do that just fine. Or you say, I have to do it. And if you have to do it, oh, buckle up. And, and I can tell that's when things get exciting because there's no excuse, right? Like, excuses are used by us <laughs> in such a weird way. We're like, you know, I w- I'm, I've got, I'm flawed. You know, I'm, I'm human. You know, I'm flawed. I've got, I've got issues and problems. I, I can't be that kind of person. And we actually use weakness as an excuse. And God says, I'm not, I don't accept that. Because I made you new. You're not the old. You're new. Because I put myself in you. And therefore, you must. You must do it. And that's when we, we tap in to God's actual power. All right. So what happens in now in this age is that with present suffering, as in, for instance, Christ said in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this in no way means that you become the king of heaven. What it means is, is that those who are members of the kingdom of heaven will be persecuted in this way. You possess that kingdom. Right? All believers do. But for those who press forward in the pursuit of righteousness, they live that kingdom, even though they're not in it yet. It's a great promise, this word blessed. Makarios in the Greek, it means it's actually plural. It means blessings to those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. So, uh, present suffering... 
This uh, little drawing here is uh, Paul on the road to Damascus. And I, I like the idea of using it for this point because it is very true. We'll see a couple passages as we close here that present suffering is equals future glory. This is promised over and over. Future, sorry, present suffering is future glory. And so I'm, there's, right, how many ascetics have there been in the church who have said, I'm going to suffer for future glory? And what they, they're forcing the suffering on themselves, going out to live in the desert or somewhere, and, uh, and they're actually after their own glory. And do you see the subtlety here? Because you are to be after glory. And the key to this is, is that it's not yours. And that will keep you on the straight and narrow. But as soon as I want stuff for myself, because it, uh, when, when people tell us um, this is really important, When, when I was told, I'll put it this way, when I was told this is really important, I said, wait, why is it important? Am I going to lose my salvation? No. Well, can't be that important. Um, will the Lord somehow not be glorified if I don't live up my end? No, He doesn't need you. How important is it really? Uh, and, and this is what was thrown on me, and it worked a little bit. As you can see, not very much, but um, you're going to lose out on all kinds of rewards in heaven. You're going to be running around in heaven naked. And when they told me that, I was like, well, I'll be in a resurrection body, right? Am I going to care? I'm going to be hot. Anyway, <laughs> I run around with my shirt off if I look like, you know, anyway. Um, but... You know, you're going to be a dummy. You're going to be in school. It's like summer school. Right? You ever had to go? I didn't have to go to summer school, thank God. I was close, but I didn't have to go. But the kids that I knew had to go to summer school, oh, that was like worse than purgatory. Had to be. Everybody's out having fun, and there's no air conditioning in the schools, and it's hot and uh, just awful. Is that what heaven's going to be like if you don't live up to your end? I can't say for sure what heaven's going to be like at all, but... I don't think so. So all of these things throughout, and this has happened throughout church history, you know, the scare tactics have been put on believers. And so we say, well, why is it important? Because it, what's important is what motivates us. A life is at risk. That's important. But is my life at risk? I have eternal life. I can't lose it. It's very important to know that doctrine, that eternal life is yours and it's yours forever. Well, will my reputation or the reputation of God be tarnished? No. He'll be glorified without you just fine. So why is it important? And I thought hard about this question. I'm still thinking hard about it. And I don't have a real zippy answer. I just know that it is. God went through great lengths to do this. 
And it's not as if like, oh, you know, Satan rebelled against heaven. Uh-oh, Jesus, what are we going to do? You know, it's he designed it this way. His throne is never in danger. Right? Can his throne be attacked? Be like call the forces. Here they come. He doesn't he doesn't need to do anything. God There's a wonderful passage where, uh, I can't remember exactly where it is, but it says the breath of his nostrils just, you know, uh, is like an atom bomb or something. That's my own translation. But, like, God just sneezes and get out the way, you know. Does he need anybody? He didn't need any of this. So why is it important that you and I do what we do? What a great question. Maybe someday I'll have an answer. When we're, if it's about, you know, if if my concern is I'm going to be glorified in heaven, me, my concern is what I'm going to have in heaven in terms of rewards or what I'm going to have in time in terms of rewards. If my my first thought is me in this, then I've missed it. Because as Paul found out, on the road to Damascus, this is not about you, this is about the Lord. And it always will be. It's His glory always. Always. So, let's look at, look at First Peter. We'll just close right here. First Peter chapter 1. The opening of Peter's letter. This is about the Lord. And I, you know, you know, in the world, something has to be at stake for it to be important. I'm going to protect my property because it's important. I'm going to protect my kids because it's important. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote right and, and do things as a citizen because the freedom of this nation is important. But in heaven, none of that is important. Not remotely. God is up in heaven waving an American flag. God has His own flag. There is one eternal, final kingdom. And there are no nations in it. They are, we are unified. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that the Lord offers up the kingdom, singular. He doesn't say to the Father, here's Israel, here's the church, and make sure you don't mix them up. So like for all of eternity, there's a Jewish sector, and then there's our sector, you know. And then, and then there are the Jewish Christians in the church age. They're like, well, where do I live? You know, and I don't mean to make fun of it, but I think I find it silly. There's definitely a distinction between Israel and the church in history. No doubt. No doubt. But for all of eternity? Mm-mm. There's one kingdom. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, first and foremost, blessed be. This Greek word, eulogetos, First, first person I heard this word from was Colonel R.B. Thien Jr. I'll never forget where I learned, when I learned it. I was on an airplane listening to a tape, and I was flying over Boston when he was going, You logatas! You know, he was doing it in his voice. And it means worthy of praise and glorification. 
That's exactly what it means. Blessed be. In other words, he does not need a human, an angel, an event, or a history to glorify him. He is glorified in and of himself. So that we begin. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Sound like you can lose your salvation or your inheritance? No. Who are protected by the power of God through faith. Through what? Faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's that phrase. Last time. I said the last second coming of Christ, end of the age. In this You greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, which is what the world desires, that's what Satan has been sowing, you know, the lust for wealth and power has been sown by Satan since the beginning. Being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Boy, thank you, Peter. Um, You greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. You notice as Peter Peter is in full understanding and teaching others that the trials themselves and the pain that we endure as we live as those that Christ has made us to be is not actually important. What's important is the fact that we have been blessed with eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so what Peter here puts the importance on the life, on the fact that it's been done. I mean, where's the importance here in this passage of Peter's, you know, his his call upon us to, to keep going forward, as he's going to say later on in this chapter, be holy. God says, be holy, for I am holy. We need to be holy. You know, what is he using here? What is Peter found to be the true motivation for pressing on in such a life? And what do you see is the accomplishment of God through Jesus Christ to make us born again? That's it. But that's a lot. I mean, we say, well, can it be that simple? But what God has done through Christ to give us eternal life is nothing simple about it. Nothing simple about it. God's great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope. That living hope is now. We live it. Hope means with faith I look at the future and I say it's marvelous. I can't wait. I long. I stretch for it. I reach for it. I strive ahead for it. And not because I'm going to get this or that, but because it's been given to me. The life itself is the important factor. And I I think this is where a lot of Christians get tripped up by this. Is that they they are absorbed with still and i man i am as guilty of this as anybody and i'm striving to to further myself away from it but to to get absorbed with the things that the flesh wants you now we're still fighting them 
We're in that cell with an unlocked door and we're sitting in the cell because our brains, our minds, our souls are still imprisoned by things that are of no importance to this eternal kingdom. And so we're stymied. We're held back. We're not jumping in with two feet. We're sticking a toe in the water and going, eh. And so Peter would say here, even though you're tested with various trials, in a world that is sown evil in sin and evil is sown by the enemy of our Lord, the devil, Peter says you greatly rejoice. And it proves what your faith is. It's more powerful than anything in this world. And so the reason for living it is because it has been given. At least we can say that much. There's probably more to it than that, I'm sure. But the reason for living this life is because it's been given to you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for guiding through your spirit as we grope through the texts of your scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit. You speak of things that are astoundingly of life and of eternal life, of God who's become a man. How could any of us truly comprehend all that you have done? And yet, as we see in your word what we can comprehend, it is it, it fights against our preconceived notions. It It causes our desire for things that are not of you to be seen in their proper perspective. We still got a long way to go, Father, when we thank you for your patience and your grace. And so, Father, we just ask that through your Spirit, our hearts would see and be enlightened, each of us, and we would grow that much further towards the image of Christ and that glory of the kingdom that he will bring. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll take our offering. It has been my goal in the last several months to teach a, teach a message in under an hour, and I have yet to do it by much. So just so you know, if you're sitting there going, ah, oh, Joe, he's just an always an hour, just know that I'm trying. Someday it might happen. Like when I pass out and die, you'll be like, hey, that was about a half an hour. Perfect. I say, at Corbin, they're all telling me you can't teach for an hour. And I'm like, oh, I'm trying. I'm trying. But whatever. It's just Corbin. Corbin's great. But anyway, let's pray. We should probably just pray for our offering. Uh huh. Uh, Let's uh, pray for our offering. Thank you, Father, for your work, for the opportunity that we know from your word that we can give as cheerful givers who give to you and worship of you so that um, the ministry can go forward, but also, most importantly, that our hearts are trained to be gracious. We ask for your blessing upon this offering. In Christ's name, amen.
close in prayer. Thank you, Father. Uh, just a reminder again, uh, no class Tuesday, Wednesday. Thank you, Father, for our gathering. The closing moments of our service are dedicated to anyone who's listening who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior. If you've not believed in Christ, I beg you to please pause for a second and consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not believe everything that you've heard about Him. I can confidently tell you that He is the Son of God, born of a virgin, who died for the sins of the world and is resurrected again on the third day. By His resurrection, His life is made available to all who will believe upon Him. He died for your sins, every one of them. And if you believe upon Him, you will be saved. That is the uh, ultimate gift that could be given to you by a person. That God Himself, who loved you so much that He gave you His Son. If you believe upon Him as your Savior, the promise is that you will be saved eternally. We thank you, Father, for all things. In Christ's name, amen.